Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of December 7th, 2020. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again this week by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. How is our holiday interregnum going, Josh? Not a holiday, but... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was thinking... <laughs> I feel like I've been struggling with that definition of where we are right now. And I mean, and it's both, I think, you know, the the normal period of year, but also like during COVID. And then I think, you know, I mean, not that you asked me a question. I know we want to get through things fast. I don't care. I'm just going to keep talking. No. But I think about that picture yesterday of the woman in Britain getting the first COVID vaccine. And at first I thought, oh, this is stupid. Why are they putting this around? And then today I'm walking the dogs and I'm thinking to myself, what would life look like after COVID? And yeah. now we're allowed to fantasize. That's it's, a good. That's a good walking the dog question. <laughs> that is a good walking the dog question. <laughs> As you're avoiding neighbors on the sidewalk, oh, it's probably too early, <laughs> right? Um, oh, it is. So, given all that uh, contemplation, we are going to <laughs> contemplate some other things also today. Though we will circle back to COVID if we can uh, stay on schedule. Uh, I wanted to start today with some national election news that's coming out of Texas late last night in the wee hours. And that's the complaint that was filed by the state of Texas with the Supreme Court against the states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin, states we've heard a lot about, uh, states with close elections, all of which completely coincidentally Donald Trump lost in the presidential election. Um, and, And this complaint from Texas is trying to get the election results nullified. And What the complaint basically says is that the states behaved illegally when, you know, they changed the election laws outside of the legislative purview, in most cases as some kind of an emergency measure, and that they treated voters differently and, you know, were treating some groups of voters more favorable than others, in this case, Democrats. Yeah, Democrat voters is how you say it. Democrat voters, per the language of the complaint, quote-unquote Democrat. The continuing tribute to Newt Gingrich's effect on political language. Is that a thing? I've been wondering. All right, anyway, keep going. (laughs) Just keep going. Yeah, it it came from the Gingrich advice uh, Mm. during the Gingrich insurgency mobilization. Um, And then just a general claim that there were voting irregularities that were unconstitutionally relaxed, you know, ballot integrity protections that uh, those states were obligated to follow. So in other words, what do they want them to do? They, you know, they want, they basically want the election results thrown out and they want the election and the choice of the electors thrown to their, each of the state's respective legislatures so that they would point presidential electors uh, in a manner consistent with one of the, you know, the weirdo provisions of the U.S. code that regulates elections. So, you know, what what is all, what does it all mean? It means what we've heard before. Texas is throwing in with what we've heard was a rumored Trump strategy to get Republican-led state legislators in these swing states that Trump lost 
to throw out the electors that were chosen by the voters and to choose them and have the the Republican majorities choose what would presumably be pro-Trump electors. Now, on one hand, we've kind of heard this was coming. It's just one more of the, the, the kind of bizarre strategies that have been emanating out of the White House and out of Trump allies and, and right-wing media for a while. You know, but I think for our, from our perspective, you know, what do we make of the fact that, that, you know, essentially the state of Texas, meaning Attorney General Ken Paxton, and, you know, certainly he seems complicit by his silence thus far, Governor <laughs> Greg Abbott. Uh, what do we make of this? Now, you know, there's a lot of things we could say. In the short term, it appears to be a last-ditch vehicle for plaintiffs that are losing and all of that have been losing court battles in all of these states to try to challenge the election as we get very close to a point of no return for them. And it'll also stoke more media coverage for Trump. Uh, you know, I've been I've been still reading at the Woodward book, and there's some really great stuff in Bob Woodward's rage about just how confident the Trump team feels in and how and particularly how confident Trump feels in his ability to do things that just drives national media coverage. I think this will likely be yeah. one of those things. And if you're the and if you're one of the Texans involved in this, uh, particularly if you're Ken Paxton, there's really nothing wrong with that. I think the other thing, you know, we have to sort of note, and we can go into some of the polling data on this. From a Texas perspective, this is something that the Texas base of the Republican leadership is going to be open to, or at least it's it's probably not going to ring very many negative bells. As we've you know, said many times and written many times before, you know, this plays into rhetoric from Texas Republican officials that predate Donald Trump by a pretty long time. You know, Texas Republican leaders have long stoked these attitudes of skepticism toward the election process among GOP rank and file, you know, to the extent that these attitudes are now pretty prevalent among those voters, right? If the Republican leaders stoked these attitudes, Trump has inflamed them, and he continues to do so. And it's hard not to look at this and see that everybody is doing this at this point more or less in their self-interest, without with not much chance of a substantive victory on the merits or the substance of the case. It seems to me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know we sort of talked about sort of the the implications and, and fallout here, and this is certainly a short-term, you know, implication, but also you know. It, it keeps this issue on the table for future use. I mean, you know, I think the thing that sort of was has been interesting from a very detached perspective in the sort of the assault on the democratic process that's been taking place <laughs> is the fact that it was being done with zero evidence. And so it didn't matter how many court cases the Trump legal team has filed. It doesn't matter how many states or venues that they filed them in. They've overwhelmingly been turned away. And the reason that they've been overwhelmingly turned away is lack of evidence. I mean, you had to bring another Texan into the mix here. The lieutenant governor offered a million dollars of his own money for someone to bring him evidence of fraud, in which is curious. Yes. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, but which, you know, but I mean, but I would say, you know, this is curious, again, given the fact that, you know, and, he, and I think actually I'll add to this, the lieutenant governor said before the election that Democrats winning Texas would only be because they stole it. Again, for a state that is, you know, has very strict laws has continually, you know, based on this idea of fraud, continue to to make the laws stricter around voting. It's kind of remarkable that people can't, you know, that the people can't marshal evidence from the past of significant voter fraud. And in a moment in which the president, 
the attorney general, right? Uh, you know, a separate legal team, Republicans in every state are looking to find voter fraud under a national spotlight and they can't. So on the one hand, you'd say, well, does this mean we're going to be done with this? And the answer clearly is no, we are not because evidence is not a requirement. Right. I think that's a good point. And, you know, it's basically keeping the discourse going and, and, you know, I think there's a real convergence of interests here again, that I, you know, I sort of lumped with the general term self-interest, but you were generous in calling Trump's legal team, a legal team. Well, they have, given... they have they've accepted by a bar somewhere. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. well, I yes. mean, they, they, yes. Talk about a low bar. Um, I, I was going to say, I guess team might not be there anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things, you know, I mean, we said that this resonated with, with and I just want to claim that without, without Offen evidence. I offensive mean, to bars and teams everywhere. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry guys, um, guys and gals. Um, but you know, when we asked if people would trust the, the result of the presidential election, regardless of who wins before the election, a big chunk of people wouldn't say yes, right? That is, and and we should say that was both Republicans and Democrats. But at this moment, the the doubts that are being played upon are the doubts of Republicans. And what sixty one percent of of Republicans uh, in October said that they wouldn't trust the result of the presidential election. So mm -hmm. you know that tells me that when you're out there, you know, kind of stoking this doubt and filing these lawsuits, that you know from a more, shall we say, mainstream perspective. I, well, I'm not sure that's mm -hmm. exactly right, but you just call it what it is. From a democratic perspective, I mean, this seems crazy, right? And 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 destructive, well, but I think it's not just a democratic perspective, as you say, given the preponderance of evidence. And well, so, you know, from well, a fact from a fact based perspective, let's put it that way. Well, and the point is, is that the inverse is crazy to Republicans. So ultimately, you know, when we asked in that same October polling whether votes being counted inaccurately would be, you know, a problem. 81% of Republicans said it would be an extremely serious or somewhat serious problem. So, you know, and, and we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. And we, we I mean, I, I mean, in some ways we're very, <laughs> I sort of, I reflect on it, it's almost funny, but it's sort of, you know, I, I almost, I almost feel bad for politicians in the sense that, you know, if you were a Republican elected official who felt like, you know, all this, all this, you know, searching for voter fraud is, you know, let's say it's bad for the process. It's bad. Let's say you have some real, you know, misgivings about the Trump legal strategy and the overall, you know, context of what we're talking about right now, it's pretty hard to go out and be say, well, you know what? 81% of my voters think this thing and I'm going to tell them they're wrong. Right. Good luck. I mean, so I think that's what that you get strategy. is, you know, and so the, the best you really get is nervous silence. Yeah. Nervous you know. silence or, or sort of, you know, the types of acknowledgements of the electoral outcome that are so... <laughs> carefully crafted so as to allow someone to be unsure about what you've said. Yeah. Or for you to be and, able to say so. Yeah. And, and I think the, you know, the information kind of environment around this or the, you know, the kind of political information world that we live in now, you know, makes it very hard to figure out how to get out of this. I mean, the strategy works. It drives liberals and Democrats crazy. But in some ways, that's exactly the point. And it drives mm -hmm. reporters in the media crazy who, you know, are looking, f you know, to make judgments of fact. And so, you know, the media has to continually refute claims and they're doing it in increasingly clear and dismissive terms. You know, it's, it's almost quaint to think back to the early days of the Trump campaign and then the early days of the Trump presidency. I don't, you know, when there was this big debate over, 
you know, whether you could say the president quote unquote lied. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. No, I do. <laughs> you know, a- and it seems, you know, almost quaint now where, you know, I mean, you can't really turn on at least, you know, some of the cable news or and even the major network news now without reporters and and even anchors going, you know, the president is claiming this and it is untrue. Or the yeah. president lied, you know, said this and he is lying about it. Uh, you know, that that norm has been shattered, but the point being that the more that that norm is shattered, the more it feeds mm-hmm. the partisan view among Republicans, among at least a lot of Republicans, that the media is completely in the tank for against Trump. Yeah. And, you know, and, you and by know, extension against them. You know, there's one other point I think you know, we want to make about this maybe before we move on so we can get to another topic. But I mean, you know, I don't also think you can't really discount the value of, a, of, of this legal case that we're talking about here. So Texas's attempt to overturn other states' results to the current attorney general, Ken Paxton, given his recent legal troubles and ethical lapses at the very least, if not yes. know, other problems, right? I mean, this, you know, being sort of at the forefront of this. <laughs> that was very dainty of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. I'm practicing, you know, being at home a lot, you don't get as much uh, practice at, at your daintiness. <laughs> but right, I mean, you know, a few weeks ago, the speculation in Texas was focusing on whether he was going to survive, you know, this latest round of scandals, right? You know, right. relationships with an Austin real estate developer on the one hand, and then, and, you know, and acknowledge at least to, to multiple staffers, affair with a former staffer in the Texas Senate who then went to work for the real estate developer, apparently, allegedly, right. completely separately. We'll just leave that alone. I mean, talking about anything else is good for Ken Paxson, but I think it also speaks, you know, I mean, just, and just as a sort of an observation, yeah. I think it also speaks to why the Trump strategy is not working. You know, ultimately, the Trump strategy to overturn the results, and I sort of was, you know, this is like an argument I'd have on my driveway with my dad kind of thing. <laughs> But the Trump strategy to sort of, you know, the idea that, you know, especially that liberals were terrified of that, you know, basically, regardless of the election results, all these state legislatures were going to come in and decide to invalidate the results and give the electors to somebody else. And my, you know, thing from the outset was, boy, that would require a lot of coordination and shared self-interest. Yeah. And what you're seeing right now, I think, on on the range in which Republicans are, are allaying themselves is, you know, sort of where they put themselves in the strategic self-interest of how they want to orient themselves to the post-Trump world. And for some people, that is a continued leaning into this for as long as possible. And again, based on their own circumstances, on the one hand, for others, it looks a lot more like silence, <laughs> you yeah. know, and then you've got some very lawyerly statements in between. And so, you know, and again, the, then there's the few people who would, you know, sort of are on the other side, but they're outliers who would say, yeah, Joe Biden won. Let's move on. Right. Yeah. But I think that's sort of the other piece to this, you know, is that, I mean, you, when you look at these actions, you can't help but think about individual self-interest here. Right. And, and not only is this something, you know, this is, is the, the attorney general's name popping up on Google, you know, related to something other than his troubles, his mm-hmm. multiple troubles. It's something that, you know, you know, conservatives like and his base right. likes. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, I think that, you know, as people discuss the attorney general's prospects, shall we call them, I think one of, one of his assets in this very difficult position is that he is, you know, well appreciated by, you know, the kind of far right activist wing of the Republican party in Texas. These are the same people that are going to view this kind of action as, you know, as a positive thing, is not giving up, yeah. is sticking up for Donald Trump, as, you know, fighting against the, you know, what they see is the, the corruption of the system. Yeah, and I think that's where Paxson has really, really well positioned himself, you know, and I'll put this in quotes, I'm not saying this per se, but like, I'm thinking of the word would be, but, you know, he's positioned himself as a warrior like Trump in some ways, right, in the sense that regardless of, you know, 
past statements, you know, reasonableness, whatever, if he believes in something, whether it's for, you know, especially like the faith-based community or the most committed Republican voters, you can expect the attorney general to make a move and he's continued to do that. And so I think that's, you know, to some degree really insulated him from a lot of his other troubles in the same way that it's really insulated Trump really within the yeah I thought it was interesting and was never really very convinced I mean when this last round of stories broke you know there were some people that were you know very much saying hey look he's gonna he's gonna resign how does he survive something like this you know I mean his wife is its senator you know there's just no you know there's just no way that you know he's gonna be able to survive this but the environment on you know surviving these kinds of scandals has changed, and I think it has to do with partisanship, right? And and yeah. polar, you know, and and more intense polar, you know, polarization, you know, and it it would take some of his fellow Republicans to really be want, you know, to try to push him out. And even then, again, remember this is an elected office. I you know I don't know that I, I don't know that you're gonna that you're gonna do that. We're, we're branching off, but the, you know, the... Well, but it, re- it relates to the next topic, though, right? I mean, ultimately, the, co- the context of the environment here matters, right. right? And so it's not, I mean, it is about out-partnership. It's about the, you know, dislike of the other party. It's about, you know, really circling the wagons, that kind of right. thing. But we're also in an environment now where when somebody clearly does something wrong, right? You know, and I feel comfortable saying that because ultimately state law actually dictates that a bunch of whistleblowers have been fired and actually... Actually, it's incumbent upon the attorney general's office now to prove that they didn't do that. So right, right now, just so I feel like that's a fair enough statement. But I mean, we're in an environment now where even when you've clearly done something wrong or can be perceived to be wrong by a large number of people, it's a question about whether you're going to take responsibility for that or whether you should even acknowledge wrongdoing. Right. And that's part of the political environment now. I mean, that's, yeah. I think, something that we're going to carry going forward and we're, we're seeing more of that. So Well, and whether – and the other piece of that is then whether people will – try to exact some degree of accountability right. regardless of partisanship. Well, it's hard. I mean, this is, we should stop. But I was like, it's hard to imagine how that happens in a Republican primary in Texas, given Ken Paxson's position amongst the most right. conservative voters in the state. He's not going to get challenged from the right. Someone's going to kind right. of have to come in as a moderate reformer and beat him in a Republican primary. And who that is going to be, whether they're going to gain any, you know, right. Who those voters are. Is the yeah, question well, is, who are, exactly. who are those voters that are, you know, where right. are you going to find the, you know, what, eight, nine hundred thousand voters you're gonna to need to beat Kemp Axton in a primary. Yeah. In a Republican primary. Now, right. this all points, you know, as we talk about Republican primaries, as we talk about the way that Republican officials in the state are reading the future and mm-hmm. reading and, and 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 very explicitly, I think, reading the post twenty twenty election post-Trump in the White House future, wherever Trump winds up, it really does point to what we've been seeing on the handling of the, you know, the biggest issue for our future right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic, how we deal with, you know, all of it, really. I mean, right. I was going to, you know, I mean, I mean, the way it looks right now is really an issue of, you know, we know that, a va- you know, it, it, there appears to be vaccines at work. There will be more. It's now a matter of getting the vaccines to people, which by all accounts, uh, as a result of various decisions, it was also news on that on that this week, you know, is going to take a while. Right. It's a logistical challenge, to be fair. Yeah. In any case. I mean, you know, I mean, I heard it in a couple of different venues that nobody really expected to even begin on the civilian population till March. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, information floating around. I heard that both in, in Senate testimony yesterday and in Texas Senate testimony yesterday and from, you know, national medical figures. But closer to home, I mean, this really came home to roost in the, has come home to roost this week, or really 
thrusts both the issue of the legislature kind of stirring in advance of the session and the, the question of, you know, how COVID is going to be treated in that context when the Health and Human Services Committee in the Texas Senate held two days of hearings on COVID-19 this week. The first day was largely about handling the pandemic itself, looking at best practices, talking about therapeutics, uh, and and therapeutics in particular was on the agenda, and I think for reasons I'll explain, I'll, yeah. I'll postulate in a second, uh, how to treat, co- you know, quote unquote, treating COVID-19 patients at each state of the disease and to talk about the vaccines and how they were going to be distributed. And actually those those parts of the, the hearing where we heard from Dr. Hellerstadt, the, the head of state cell services, and Cecilia Young, the commissioner of, of HHS, were actually factu- you know, very factual and helpful and, and clear-eyed. You know, provided interesting information. I mean, they were you know. clear-eyed, you know, they're very clear-eyed assessments in an otherwise political context. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, you know, and then there was a, a lot of discussion Monday about, you know, collecting modeling and reporting data on tests, hospitalizations, et cetera, and examining who was doing what and all that, you know, state agencies, local governments, private entities. And in the burr under the saddle there, honestly, was the quality of the data right. and the data reporting, particularly early on. And then today, and I had to turn it off for us to record this, focused on evaluating the effects of COVID on public health writ large. And there was a lot of attention today and, you know, various invited testimony on behavioral health, mental health, child abuse, family violence, long-term care residents, and the impact of delayed medical care. Now, you know, as I said, there were elements of this, I think, where everybody played it reasonably straight. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of recapping and updating on, you know, where we are at this moment, some discussion of where we had been. But you and I were both talking about this. And, you know, it also suggested, not surprisingly, but again, we like to wait for evidence before we make suppositions on this podcast anyway. (laughs) Um, It also suggested that the partisan politics that we've seen, frankly, cripple the national and the state responses while the ledge has been out of session, are a lot are going to be alive and well in the ledge, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the Republican chair and the co-chair, Lois Kolkhorst and and Senator Charles Perry, respectively, you know, were pretty diplomatic in acknowledging the fact of the of the public health emergency. I don't think anybody could walk away and say they don't think it's happening or they're denialists or anything like this. But you know, if you watched this for any length of time, they were also pretty clear in their desire to pick around the edges of the sense of of catastrophe here. Mm-hmm. You know, they made efforts to highlight, you know, the data reporting efforts, for example, in ways that I thought were likely to reinforce the doubts of people that were already inclined to be skeptical of the seriousness. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of talk about the trade-offs in health in health outcomes, for example in limiting elective procedures. Now, you know, I want to be quick to say there's nothing wrong or even, you know, inaccurate about those two areas of questioning. Mm-hmm. The data reporting early on was pretty terrible. Right. The data eff- the effort to collect and report this data is complicated. And there's a lot of things going on, but I but I think that you know, the tone of this resonated with the partisan patterns in public opinion we've seen. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, you know, I mean, wholeheartedly. And I mean, in a way, I mean, again, we were talking about the constraints that legislators face. 
you know, and ultimately, you know, they face <laughs> the constraints in some ways they create themselves. And this is, you know, coming from the top down, but it's also coming again through the range of sorts of, you know, either I would say infrequent communications from top, you know, sort of especially Republican elected leaders, but also, you know, in some cases, you know, direct contradiction of good public health advice. I mean, I think the thing that you're kind of pointing out in terms of the focus of the hearings that's interesting is, you know, I mean, one, you know, the focus on sort of on therapeutics and the and the other costs of COVID not related to COVID-related deaths, but again, other sorts of bad, you know, medical outcomes, et cetera, is certainly, you know, a reasonable thing to explore, but it's all meant, I mean, I feel as though given... <laughs> What we've seen thus far, what we've seen in the data, it's really all intended in some ways to downplay the seriousness of the pandemic relative to the cost of fighting, it, which is kind of where we are at this point. I mean, I think, you know, the discussion thus far has really been about how we can weather this storm to the point at which everybody gets vaccine, which basically means, you know, as grim as we expect the winter to be, you know, expect it to be grimmer still because there's no expectation that people should take. Well, I don't know there's a lot of expectation people should take personal responsibility. There's no enforcement mechanism behind it. Right. So the question becomes, you know, well, why is that the case? You know, and ultimately it's just that the, you know, sort of denial of COVID is is really concentrated. I mean, just to put it, just to put it bluntly. Yeah. So just to throw some numbers up here real quick. So, I mean, basically overall in our October 2020 University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll, about 47% of registered voters identified as Republicans. 27% of Texans say that they're living normally right now during the virus, coming and going as usual, and that's regardless of any sort of restrictions or directives otherwise. 73% of these groups, so three out of every four of these Texans, are Republicans. And 80% of those Republicans are white Republicans because most Republicans are white. So when we're talking about the, the racial disparities in COVID, you know, one of the other things that's sort of, you know, I mean, devious in a lot of this is, you know, the Republican Party in Texas is a majority white party. So about 74% of Republicans identify as white as opposed to 55% of Democrats who identify as non-white. So when you're talking about Republican attitudes here, you're talking mostly about the attitudes of white Republican voters in Texas. So, you know, what are some other examples of this? You know, 74% of registered voters say that they're avoiding other people as much as possible, right? Well, who isn't? 6% of Democrats say they're not avoiding people. 23% of independents say they're not voting people. 27% of non-white Republicans say that they're not voting people. 42% of white female Republicans and 56% of white male Republicans say that they're not avoiding people. So about half. So when we talk about this, we're not talking about everybody who's skeptical of the virus or everybody who's behaving, you know, let's right. say cheating the rules. We're really talking about a concentrated set of people. And, you know, I mean, it kind of really multiplies the dangers of either the silence on the one hand by elected officials or I would say even worse, you know, the downplaying of the seriousness of the pandemic on the other hand, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and, you know, we have a blog post about this we put up on our website yesterday that people can find in, our, in the blog section at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. You know, I think it's hard not to look at this and conclude that encouraging a kind of minimization of this that leads to you know, basically behavior, as you say, that is a threat to public health, that the responsibility for addressing that, given all the dynamics, and you're right, that we were just talking about with, you know, partisanship and the interpretation of public information, you know, in, in the context of elections, it operates here too. And that means that partisan leaders have to talk to their partisans. Right. I mean, because like, that, they're the only people that they're really going to listen. I mean, you know, look, there's the normal dynamics that we know about that people really listen to, you know, family and peers. Yeah. But given the sorting of, you know, that we know has gone on, 
the dynamic is still at work there. You have to be able to, you have to send consistent messages to your partisans to deflect some of this behavior. And we were just not, now look, it, you know, a Senate committee hearing is not a huge public forum. I was surprised, you know, I, there was very little news coverage, frankly, of that hearing yesterday, yeah. which I thought was was very odd. And if you're a journalist and you're happening to hear this and you wrote about it, you know, power to you and send me the story. Yeah, um, send it to us. We'll tweet it back or something. Yeah. But. but, you know, nonetheless, you know, this is a leading indicator of what we're going to see in the session. It's a leading indicator of how, you know, relatively well-placed senators and just, you know, not to put too, you know, dull a point on it. I mean, you know, Senator Colcourse and Senator Perry are allies of the lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. And they are not doing anything in this hearing, I don't think, that the lieutenant governor would not approve of. And and that is an automatic kind of dynamic that goes with those political relationships. You know, and at one of the low points, to my mind, of the hearing, you know, in a discussion of, of mental health, Senator Perry, you know, in a comment masquerading, frankly, as a question, expressed discontent how there, just, how there was just not enough attention to positive news about the pandemic and that the, you know, this kind of positive news would help mental health. Well, you know, the problem with that is that there's not really any positive news right now. Right. And that if you're presenting positive news in the context of a significant group of people that are not taking it seriously to begin with, it's not the time for absent happy talk to make people feel a little better. And I should say the mental health professional he was talking to responded with, I thought in a very, in a way that was not combative, but was very effective in saying that, you know, basically courage comes from facing hard things. You know, mm-hmm. it's not courageous if, you know, you're not facing something that's difficult or hard. And I think we have to give people the chance to face things and be courageous in the face of that. And there are ways that we can do that, to hmm. paraphrase. Yeah, so it's an absence of courage, per se. <laughs> yes, I mean, it was it was a very it was funny. a very interesting it That's was a interesting very interesting dynamic. response. Well, you yeah. know, just just to follow up on that, I mean, I, and I think this is really important. You know, there's been so much focus in the last week and a half, you know, on on Austin Mayor Steve Adler here in Texas and the fact that he encouraged people basically to stay at home while he himself was at a family sort of wedding party in Mexico that he had flown to on a private jet. Not and a then good if that's not bad enough. Not a good look, right? <laughs> Definitely not what you should be doing. But but the point that we're trying to make Well, yeah, here, but, but you have to tell the whole story if we're going to really talk about how, bon- to be fair, to be fair on a bipartisan basis, not only did he go to Mexico on a private jet with a bunch of people, he right. then recorded a yes. message urging people to, to not get together for the holidays that he recorded while in Mexico. No, I mean, I imagine him I mean, we like, have to be know, fair here. I, getting you know, a text we, on his phone, washing the sand off his feet, going into the <laughs> hotel room to, you know, telling his kids, hey, give me a minute. I got to do something. Right. And we should and we should say in all fairness, I mean, I think this morning or late yesterday, you know, the 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 mayor released a pretty I mean, he kind of had to, but released a big mea culpa saying, look, I've yeah, let you down. At, I'll have to re-earn your trust, et cetera. But, you know. Well, number one, I mean, we should, well, number one, we, should very say, little choice. we shouldn't just say that that's, you know, BS because ultimately a lot of people aren't doing that. So the yep. fact of acknowledge fault, we should, we should applaud. But the, the bigger picture yes. here is, is that, you know what? Democrats are already following these, these guidelines. Right. All the public data we have indicates that, you know, by and large, significantly higher shares of Democrats are doing what they can. Right. And now the significantly higher shares of independents are doing what they can to prevent the spread of the virus. Ultimately, Austin, you know, 
Austin, Texas's Democratic mayor, Steve Adler, having a screw up is not going to change the behavior of Democratic voters. And honestly, good behavior by Steve Adler is not going to change the behavior of Republican voters. And that's why it's sort of besides the point. And I mean, you know, we want to wrap up soon, but I I do want to get to kind of the central nub of this. Really, this is the burr under my saddle, I think, for weeks now, which is this idea. Tell us, cowboy. I'm going to. It's this idea of COVID fatigue, this thing you're hearing about. Now, look, ultimately, COVID fatigue, sure, it's a real enough thing. We're all sick of being at home. We're all sick of, you know, the things we can't do and the things we've missed out on in this last year. That is, you know, undoubtedly We've all probably done something that we thought, well, that was probably a risk I shouldn't have taken. Yeah, almost certainly. But the thing about this sort of like prevalence of this idea of COVID fatigue is that, you know, it's there's a couple problems with it. Number one, you know, and I always think about these kind of things in the sense of, you know, well, does this really describe people? Is this true? Because a lot of times when you hear these broad, you know, statements about, well, you know, people have COVID fatigue, so we don't, they don't want more restrictions. They won't listen to them. And it's like, who are you talking about? And I think the data we just went through kind of makes a clear point here. You're not talking about everybody. And I mean, I know we work at a higher ed institution, so I shouldn't say this, but I feel like, you know, this was the same conversation that was going on. We we're talking about the discussion about reopening universities. Right. I mean, you're saying, oh, we have to reopen universities. We have to reopen universities. Well, look, you know, you're talking about, you know, in the U.S. right now, about 30 percent of the population has a college degree. I'm sure there are a lot there are a lot of other tangential benefits to the communities, to economies, to individuals that are related to opening colleges, universities. But ultimately, that was a large discussion talking about a minority of people in in a distinct age group, an elite population within that age group. It's the same thing here. We're not talking about everybody. The data tell us we're talking about a concentrated set of Republicans, in particular white Republicans, and even more particular white male Republicans, who are not getting a consistent message from people that they would listen to telling them that maybe they should cool it. Maybe they shouldn't have that tailgate. And the thing is, is that this idea of fatigue, what the problem is, is it becomes justification for other people. I mean, as you know, I did a lot of work in, you know, academic honesty work at some point. And one of the biggest predictors of whether people cheat on tests is thinking that other people are cheating. So when the news media reports that COVID fatigue is this prevalent thing that's affecting everybody, if you're sitting there, it's sort of tell it's a signal to you, well maybe maybe I maybe I can do something. I mean if everybody else is doing stuff, yeah. maybe I can do stuff too. Or maybe these rules aren't really that important. If I'm predisposed to believe the rules aren't important because I've been told they're not and I'd be cold and I've been told that the disease is overblown, well, that even more so likely that I should go out and do this stuff. And so the idea that, you know, again, a small share, concentrated share of the population that has been misinformed about the virus is then, you know, their behaviors are then being post hoc justified by media and others as just a natural feature of the experience we're all going through is just not true. Right. And, I, and I think one of the, you know, the, the after effects of that poor conceptualization and you know, basically just, it's just conceptually flawed to, and empirically flawed to think about what's going on and to think about the behavior and response to the pandemic is that when you don't address that directly, it metastasizes. Yep. And so in the right. absence of actually specifying the problem and addressing it directly, it's grown. Well, and you know what? Let's wrap it back up. And this is a perfect place to probably finish, right? And then you get to a situation like where you are with voter fraud writ large and people's perception of it, right? We can have this huge election. We can have the Republican attorney general tell us there's no significant voter fraud. We can have Republican appointed election security officials telling us this is the safest election 
in history. We can have state legislatures certifying, Republican state legislatures certifying the election results. We can have recounts that don't find changes in the votes. And yet we can still be sitting here with multiple you know, prominent elected re- officials saying that the fraud was rampant. We have multiple bills filed in the Texas legislature to make it harder to vote Next time, we have the Attorney General of Texas trying to invalidate the election results in other states. And can you imagine if California New York tried to invalidate Texas's election results? I don't want to imagine how many heads would be exploding. And it doesn't matter that there's no evidence, because ultimately what we see now is that it's metastasized to the point where you've got 80 plus percent of Republican voters who believe that this fraud is a feature of the system. And if you're an elected official, you know, and again, I said I'm, I'm almost, you know, if, if you didn't have a part in it, I'd almost feel bad for you. Now you're bound by this. And that's what I, and the problem is, is that, you know, in the case of COVID, it just means more death and well, it means more I, strain on the healthcare system. And it's not really, I mean, you know, right. I mean, the point democracy is, <laughs> I mean, I think that the voting analogy is a good attitudinal one, but I think the one that we should, but the thing that, that you kind of get out there that we have to emphasize is that the key difference is that these misplaced attitudes are, are making the problem worse in terms of fueling, making voting harder. That's a that's a passive negative outcome, right? Right. In the case of the co- of of the pandemic, because of the nature of epidemics and and the way that the virus spreads, the longer you avoid recognizing this, or if you fail to avoid this, its costs are measured in sickness, death, economic hardship, in a way that makes it extremely frustrating to have people ignoring the available data in my view. It's another podcast that ends on a happy note. Well, I'll say I'd rather be fatigued than dead. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, yeah, I, th- I think that's what people are saying. The problem is since th- we're saying that fatigue leads to death. <laughs> right. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to our crew in the College of Liberal Arts, Liberal Arts Development Studio. Have a good week. We'll be back next week for one more podcast before the break. Take care and be well. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 